0: You are listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a really good show for you today, including an interview with Tony Turner, the author of the famous song Harperman. If you enjoy this program and you'd like to see more of it, including the incredibly awesome upcoming changes we have planned for you, you can help support Make the Green Majority member by becoming a member today. You can do that at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash green majority. Enjoy the show. Welcome and good morning or afternoon or evening. I'm Darren Kaster, your host. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners and syndicates across the country, our podcast audience, and uh, of course, Rabble.ca, National Observer, all those fun folks. And beyond. And beyond. Thank you, (laughs) Stefan. Very philosophical, Stefan, this morning. Uh, We're also joined in the studio, uh, not as per usual, but uh, with uh, very much some joy, Thank you for joining us, M.A. Ma as well, who's going to be uh, chiming in, I think, uh, as with some staccato throughout the, the event. The main part of today's uh, program is actually that we're going to be speaking to Tony Turner, who I bet most of you just went, wait, I know that name. Uh, that's because Tony Turner is the Environment Canada scientist who in 2015 was suspended by the Harper government for performing his protest song Harper man. I can also say with some uh, disclosure that I went down in uh, and filmed the Toronto sing along version of that as well. So I do have some bias there as if you didn't know that on this topic already. <laughs> um, what's really interesting, though, and, and so at the time he was sort of not available to speak to by phone. And so I think we ended up speaking to his brother or something like that. Uh, And what's really interesting, uh, though, as well, was that we've had a bunch of good things happen theoretically since then. So one of the news items we'll get into later was a union decision, uh, a union deal, which I'm still a little bit unclear on the details. But the general thrust of is essentially that uh, the union to some degree and with uh, the hopeful, hopefully will be expanding this protection to other areas of government, uh, other types of sciences uh, within with government connections to essentially create a legally binding deal with the government that prevents Future muzzling. It 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 essentially enshrines the right of scientists who are public servants to speak directly to the media on matters of their opinion, uh, without having to go through any sort of screening process. In addition to that, of course, Harper, the Harper from Harperman, is now gone, and I think we've we'll got a very perfect time to talk to Tony uh, at this point to see where he feels uh, this is, this situation is now. Of course, we've had a variety of cautious. Uh, cautious uh, cautious support for some things from the new government. We've had some very harsh words in by we, I mean me, (laughs) uh, had some very harsh words in other areas. Um, So today we're going to find out who the person who I think very much – didn't start any sort of opposition, but I think very much encapsulated a lot of the frustration that was with the previous government, and we're going to find out what he thinks about the new one and some of the policies and some of the directions that we're going to, uh, somewhat in general and somewhat with some specificity towards the uh, the sciences and the interrelation of science and the government. So we'll be coming to that in a few minutes. We're going to get to that interview a little bit early today because I think that much of the fruitful discussion will actually flow from that. So before we get there, all we're really going to do is talk about some Trudeau updates specifically the two T's now Trump and Trudeau um, we'll get back to some of this because a lot of the news stories today are sort of tangled together so with with some with a note that we will be coming back to it I think that all that's worth saying at this point uh, is of course that there was uh, many people were a little bit surprised although I think in fairness it was um, one of those instances where maybe surprise was not warranted. Um, because he was already publicly in support of it, uh, was the, uh, Keystone XL pipeline. I almost said not get to Morgan. <laughs> the Keystone XL pipeline. Of course, nobody's shocked that Trump wants to, uh, unban, undo Obama's, uh, uh, executive order that prevented that project from going forward. Um, and I think the part where, I, where I said people were surprised and I don't think for good reason was that Trudeau met and was super thrilled about this. He's, he's not made much of a, uh, a secret of the fact that he is also in support of that program and I think this brings into focus uh, a few different issues, and one of them is going to be sort of, you know, the, the, what is this conversation going to look like? And one of the ways we're going to discuss that, which will also be to come uh, back a little bit later, was a very interesting article uh, that was an interview by uh, Bill Tillman uh, with The Tie, who's another Canadian independent um, a news organization uh, interviewing Rachel Notley about uh, pipelines. So we're gonna there's gonna be a lot of pipeline conversation today. For now, though, I would like to uh, reach out to my panel uh, just for comment on the uh, Trump Trudeau Keystone XL connection. Uh, or ma, would you like to jump in first?
1: Uh, sh- sure. Uh, first, I think it just quick note: uh, Obama didn't actually stop Keystone XL using a uh, executive order. It was the State Department that that just said no, basically, um, which makes it a little different because it's because there's a whole there's a, there's a large uh, piece there of they were understanding it's the national interest and and all the other pieces that go with you know under uh, uh, like an environmental assessment and all these other pieces of that uh, and so to do, for Trump to undo that it would take a little more time I think um, now again Keystone XL is like mostly built it's one of those things like I feel like there's I'd be interested to know how many half-built pipelines uh, exist throughout uh, throughout North America because there's a bunch of these spaces uh where it sounds as if you know we've got a half built you know it's energy east is mostly built even though it's not necessarily approved um or at least partially built and all these different and and yet it's it's interesting to sort of understand like they get they get close enough that once that you finally get the approval then they can then they can really go forward um but on this one it's it's exactly as, as you said I don't know it's it's depressing but also totally expected. You know, I like I don't know I don't know if it's it's a frustrating place to be in where a politician keeping their word is a annoying bad thing. Because you you can't really say anything, right? You you all you like you you don't you lose that ability to to sort of criticize them for you know not pursuing the the best interests because they
0: campaigned on that and we elected them on that. Yeah. You know? or, or you could take the Trump school, which is just just take every side on every issue and then you're always right. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah,
1: so so I think what's so you know it sounds like it's basically going to go through. I don't know. I don't even know what there what opposition could exist beyond sort of you know being
0: directly in front of the pipeline but i feel like that's a, that's the only way to do it so I'll, I'll pass it to Ma now. But one of the things that really stood out for me on this, of course, was that we're and we're going to come back to this later. But when we get into the Rachel uh, Notley uh, piece uh, after the interview as well, one of the things that was being talked about it was like, hey, we've done the math. Uh, don't worry. This will keep us below our targets. Uh, that's the line of the government right now at, at multiple levels, provincial, many provincial governments and, of course, Trudeau as well. Uh, no building these pipelines actually helps us meet our climate goals and whatever. And we're going to we're going to debunk that a little bit later. Uh, but one of the key things there that really the, the, the reason why this thing stuck out for me on that particular point was you weren't expecting or I, I'm extremely skeptical that you factored in key Excel going forward into your climate plan which means if you made your climate plan and that we have a bunch of goals and don't worry this has been designed to meet that and then suddenly you go okay and let's throw on a keystone XL on top of that does that not prove that you're either lying or you didn't actually do that math like what part am I missing am I am I completely out to lunch here am I
2: oh of course you are all Sorry. the time <laughs> yeah. no um, I think if you're looking at analyzing how the Trudeau government is doing on their climate scorecard, they're not doing all that well. And I mean, there are many pre-election promises that were made um, and it's interesting to see which ones they are actually keeping. So in fairness to them, they did say they were for Keystone XL so that they are being consistent. Um, But they also did say that they were going to go forward with a different GHG reduction target and they have reneged on that. So it's, it's not looking that positive. From my perspective, there was a political opportunity to let this keystone excel just sort of fade out. So when under the it was stopped under the Obama administration, as Stefan has described, they, of course, had to make all these noises like saying they're disappointed and all that. I understand that. But they then had a further decision making point down the road just to let it go. And instead of taking that seizing on that opportunity and letting it go which politicians often do they have decided actually to come back in full force supporting this so this is a this is a key decision there were choices within this framework.
0: So uh, one of the uh, quotes, and this is from the Vancouver uh, Sun, actually, article on this uh, issue as well. There's a quote here, and I want to I want to pull out a couple pieces of this for interest. So this is a this is a chunk from a Vancouver Sun article, which of course, as usual, will be posted on the website. Uh, a key part of our climate emission uh, emissions reductions was putting a national price on carbon, and Alberta's plan to put an absolute cap on uh, oil sands emissions. Our plan to reach our Paris emissions targets folds into that cap on oil sands emissions. Regardless of whether or not we build pipelines, there is going to be further development in the oil sands. We need to make sure that we are doing this and keeping it inefficient. We're keeping it responsible environmentally, and we're preventing it from going above that cap. And then he continued, putting in a pipeline is a way of preventing oil by rail, which is more dangerous and more expensive. The pipelines are very much integrated into our pan-Canadian framework for fighting climate change. So there's a couple of really big problems in there. <laughs> One of them is that if you keep changing the amount of like, uh, so you 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 can't have it both ways. Either either the pipelines affect um, the. Either affects the amount of business that they're able to do, uh, or it doesn't, and either affects the safety. So here, the main fallback is essentially, and this is the argument that we're that I've, that has basically become, I think they've realized is their most effective argument for just doing the the, the policy that they want to do, and that is this is going to happen anyway. We're asking you to give us the sort of social license to ensure that it happens responsibly uh, with the implication is that other people are just going to be you know, – we're just going to be doing it dangerously. But it removes – it does two things. First of all, it removes any discussion of is there, was there another plan. It, what they're telling you is that there isn't. Now, that's not because there actually isn't. That's because they have decided that there is not another option. So there has been no real actual discussion at any point, at any high-level policy point of view. Even the, uh, even the discussions that were had, uh, that again, we'll come back to when we get to the Notley thing, but between the, the oil companies and, and a, a bunch of high-profile uh, established uh, environmentalists and the Alberta government putting together that plan, they're saying, well, look, we have the green light of these environment groups. This is going to happen, and look, we're just going to make sure it's happening in the most responsible way. But even at those meetings, there was no discussion of, well, what else could we do? And I think if there was, that we would have heard why that's not possible. Hey, I know a lot of people are really want us to do this. Here's why that's not feasible. Uh, and the reason I'm just saying that is not was like, well, they didn't answer every single one of my questions. Therefore, they're wrong. What I'm saying is that, no, lots of people have been proposing alternatives. And the, the line here is that doesn't exist. So the actual, the actual problem here is that, yes, pipelines are, generally speaking, going to be safer than rail. I concede that point. I have no problem conceding that point. The problem is is that what you're doing is you're saying that there isn't couldn't possibly be another option and the uh, i'm extremely skeptical that the math on this has actually been done and the reason i'm doubting that is that we've heard in the last few weeks several articles coming out saying uh, the trudeau government hasn't been properly informed we have another story here about how somebody did a, a extremely thorough peer review study of what information is actually out there about spills and the effects on marine habitats finding that there's giant gaps there, the information doesn't exist the studies haven't been done to be able to make these sort of definitive statements about the safety and security of these pipelines never mind the fact that the Dilbit, which is actually going to be need to use to actually move this oil sands pipelines out there, is a proprietary chemical. We don't actually know what's in it, and the government doesn't either. So how can you possibly assure me that this is safe? And so the thing that is absolutely concerning me is not because I'm saying, you know, that perfect to the enemy, the good thing is what I can hear anyone probably saying to me, which is that, hey, you know, we're making progress, you know, stop demanding that our progress isn't good enough uh, because it's better than doing nothing. And I'm saying, actually, in this case, it's probably not. Uh, a because of feedback loops and b because almost all of the concerns of the activists who are fighting against it in addition to the overall carbon budget issue has not even been considered which is the actual safety what happens when there's a spill their pipeline spill response cannot be accurate because even the government doesn't know what it is going to need to clean up if there is a spill because they can't know because it's proprietary so what really scares me here about all this is just the foregone conclusion of the fact that all of this has to go and the quite frankly bs that it is a foregone conclusion that this oil is going to be done no matter what and so therefore you just you should support us in in these particular set of policies we've designed to control it um that is a false dichotomy that isn't true uh, i'm however going to stop now and let my other <laughs> co-host talk for two minutes before we go to our first interview
1: yeah uh so like what's funny it, it, what I keep coming back to um when we talk about this this pipeline conversation or all the legitimately good things that Trudeau government has done in climate um is is the fact that it works, or like you can argue, you you can make the argument that you know that all what we're doing currently is within you know is within it's a part of a larger plan that we're going to get and it's going to make keep us under climate the Paris Agreement, right? You could say that this is the beginning of a of a ramping up efforts, and if each year they continue to put up uh, put forward more and more good climate policy, that eventually could build up to something that's actually valuable. Um, and there's a value in, in 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 ramping those things up slowly, so you can actually keep so you can make sure they're do, done correctly and done well. My concern is that what we're doing is presuming that the government will stay the same for as long as you need to pull this off. And I just don't think we have that luxury. You know, I, 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 I've I said this on the show a bunch of times before, and I still think it's true that Trudeau will almost certainly win the next election, uh, if only because of the failures of the other parties, let alone the fact that sort of, you know, he's found this sort of mushy middle. And especially with the election of Trump, I think that will
0: drastically help him because Canadians will want to feel like we're not them uh, in a very specific way, which I will only interrupt you briefly to say that I'll put a flag in that that I disagree with that one point. I think uh-huh. Trump will actually become a huge liability for Trudeau because he's going to keep saying yes to him. And Canadians hate Trump.
1: But but, but I think the thing about that, though, is then you're presuming that the next election, you're not going to be he's not going to be against someone who's already more like Trump. Versus you know the NDP, which unfortunately I
0: don't see full that figuring could be, it out. That could for be it. true, but if we end up with Michael Chong on the Conservatives, who's promoting carbon policy, I think he's in serious trouble. But anyway, let's come back to yeah. that. Let's come back to that when it's not complete conjecture. <laughs> <laughs> um, complete conjecture. That's like basically the other name of the show. <laughs>
1: uh, no, but like I, what I'm concerned about is is you keep getting all these pieces where. We build up a pol- set of policies, and a build up a set of other pieces around this. Um, you know, infrastructure gets built, like pipelines, and then you get another. Then you get a different government and come in, and then suddenly, suddenly, all the things that you were, you, you, all the plans you created, were are gone. But the pipelines are still there. And, and, and that's what you're going to get, right? You're, it's the same thing as, as, as some of the criticisms of Obama, uh, Ob- some of Obama's failings with the drone policy or with, um, with, with spying. It's like everyone was like able to be sort of okay with it because everyone inherited some trusted Obama, but the fact that he let those things run amok now is terrifying because a different set of person is sort of is now leading them. And I think it's the same sort of thing where we're, building the inf- we're not building the future that we want to live in. Like if you ask yourself what does the world in 40 years have look like it can't have oil pipelines so building them now is not a part of building that future and what concerns me is all of the stuff we're doing uh that is that is the climate related on the good side um isn't actually really building a world in any way right it's not it's not infrastructure it's not it's not part of that 40-year plan like yes we need a price in carbon which is something but it's not a part of this it's not creating the world we need to live in it's 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 saying it's putting up policy that helps hopes other people do it but it's not actually building stuff um, and you know, if if he was going to come out with a with a with a pretty strong you know support for green green initiatives, uh, or if the, gov- the government sort of took some more steps that were actually helping us build the infrastructure in the same way that we're seeing oil infrastructure get built, let's build the infrastructure of the actual future. Um, and that's not the sightsee dam, right? <laughs> like these are not these, that doesn't count uh, because like, oh, it's, it's renewable. He it has a whole different conversation there, obviously. Yeah. Um, but like that's that's what gets me is that we're constantly stuck in this place where. The, the federal government creates, uh, creates, creates a bunch of infrastructure for the world we don't want to live in and a bunch of policy in the world we do want to live in, and in four years, only one of those two things might exist, and that's the problem with this plan like if he wins for next, if if, if Trump is, if, if Trudeau ends up being uh, 40 in there, uh, if Trudeau ends up being in power for the next 40 years, then sure, you know, maybe, maybe this is a good, a, a, a reasonable ramping up of, of
2: action. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to refute that because, and I, I, I get, I get the argument that you're making mm-hmm. and I follow it totally, Stefan, but all these actions um, are quantifiable in terms of what will be the resulting GHG emissions. So right now, the actions, the policies that the Trudeau government is passing, they are generating more GHG emissions than they are actually reducing. And I believe that a journalist on the National Observer has actually done this quantification exercise, and I'm sure it will be refined over time, and we can try to dig up the link to that. But the hard reality is that they are making decisions in favor of increasing um, emissions, and as you're saying – this doesn't match the future that we want to see coming into being. The the Rachel Notley our, uh, interview that we'll talk about a bit later on in the show, one of the key platform points that she raises is that we are putting a cap on the oil sands, but that cap – and she say, well – She says, well, there won't be more produced because people will become – companies will become more efficient in their production um, within that cap. cap. So there won't be more emissions produced, but the volume of product will increase. Now, the point is the framework itself is completely faulty. So maybe we should uh, leave it on that note, go to break, and then we'll come back with our interview.
0: Yeah, we're going to find out what Tony Turner thinks about that. So uh, thank you, Emma and Stefan, And uh, we'll go now to our tech this week, who is Alex
3: who I wasn't even sure we were going to see over the holidays. Thanks for coming in, man. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, So we're going to hear uh, from uh, a band. They're close. Welcome back. You're listening to the Green Majority
0: here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, and I'm joined now on the phone by Tony Turner. Are you there, Tony? Now he is. There we go. All right. <laughs> we, missed uh, you. we missed you saying hello. Welcome to the
4: program. Okay. Well, hello again.
0: <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for taking some time to uh, join with us today. I'll remind our listeners as well that uh, you are the Environment Canada scientist who became uh, a, a minor celebrity, I would say, uh, with your protest song, Harper Man, uh, last year, uh, as I said at the beginning of the program as well. I actually uh, volunteered my time to uh, uh, help film the Toronto version of the sing-along that was sort of done preceding that.
4: Uh, but in many ways, I you were... I love that. So, <laughs> I love that. I thought the one at Queen's spark
0: yes yes i yeah. was i filmed that for you
4: <laughs> yeah great that was that was a wonderful uh, performance there
0: so uh yeah it really was great so uh the um the, the reason why i thought it was very apt to talk to you now of course was that at the time uh as the name of the song suggests we were uh wishing that mr harper uh would be uh, gone we have since successfully exercised that particular demon and uh metaphorically speaking of course Um, And uh, we're now in a very different political situation, um, but many would argue, I think, that that some has changed and some has not changed. So without getting any further of my personal punditry, I would like to start very much with seeing as you were such a big part of trying to, uh, or at least in in many ways, a a sort of cultural face of trying to get rid of Mr. Harper. How do you feel about uh, the year so far since he's gone?
4: Well, it's certainly been better. I know when after the day after the election, I just felt this weight lift off my shoulders, and I think I was not alone. I think there were millions of Canadians that felt the same thing. Um, I think what the, this current government has been doing has been mixed. You know, I think uh, uh, there's been been some um, sort of positive and some some negative things uh, with respect. I mean, I think the signing of the climate change agreement, for example, was uh, was really important um you know uh, but they they seem to be kind of playing both sides you know now they're they're uh, ag- agreeing to allow pipelines to be developed and uh they say that it's going to fit in with the climate change agenda but i guess we'll just have to wait and see so it's kind of it's kind of mixed but on on balance i would say at least they have an ear to environmental uh concerns and uh and i think that's good
0: so one of the news stories that I had actually um, flagged for this week before I even was was uh, aware that we were going to be able to speak to you today was actually one that was I'd found in uh, the tie, which is talking about scientists officially being unmuzzled, uh, and this was a union deal negotiated with federal employees uh, as a, a, effectively a right to speak collective deal. Um, would, it, I'd just be fascinated to know what your comments are on that. Is this is this a real solution to the concern that you had at the time when you wrote the song?
4: Um, well. Um I, I I was I was kind of muzzled, but I wasn't muzzled for my science, so it's a little different a little different twist on it. I was muzzled because I wrote a song, <laughs> uh, so it's a little different thing. But I am, you know, being a scientist, I was aware of a lot of the muzzling that had gone on and the um, the political pressure within the public service. So um, I'm certainly in favor of 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 scientists being able to speak about their research in a free and open way. Uh, because they're the ones that know that information the best, and they're the best, I think, to to communicate it to to uh, you know to their audience, you know. And it's up to the politicians and the senior bureaucrats to determine what the kind of the policy angle is on their research, how they're going to use it for to to support the government agenda. But the the, the science is sort of it's politically neutral, in what, the way I see it, and so you, it's it, it's about using the best available. Evidence we have to support decision making, and uh, uh, if the politicians make the wrong the wrong case, uh, the, the, if they make if, if they don't use the information effectively, I think uh, I'm hoping Canadians will will recognize that and then call them on it.
0: Well, and I think you brought up uh, Tony a, a very important part of this discussion, which was I mean before the concern was that uh, scientists were not able to speak about areas of their expertise, something that on its face seems. Uh, Just absolutely ludicrous. Um, But now even with the with the supposed unmuzzling either officially through this union uh, uh, contract deal or just generally speaking by having a uh, at least on its face at a bare minimum uh, more open to science uh, government uh, in power now that there is still a problem with the fact that culturally we've been seeing a wave of sort of anti-intellectualism in the sense that uh, whether we're talking about uh, with Trump in the U.S. or just generally with the just shocking degree of people that still think that climate change is a conspiracy, despite that number dwindling, um, that there's just even, even with unmuzzled scientists that we're just either uh, at a government level or just at a general citizen level, not overall really taking scientists as, as the experts in the areas that they study as, as we should be. Do you, what are your thoughts on that?
4: I, I think there. Uh, my, my feeling is that there's just so much information or data out there, like through various social media and uh, the, all the ways we, all the different ways we ingest information, that I think the average citizen just doesn't know what to take as the truth and what's not the truth. You know, it's not like we have any kind of filters out there saying this is, you know, this is a fact, and then this over here is not a fact. Um, you know, I think in the past we, when we had fewer sort of Media sources and ways to get information. You know, we really believed that, you know, uh, uh, academics and um, uh, you know and science, scientists were kind of the experts, and they were they were given you know the fair time on 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 the news or whatever ways they had to, or the or the published papers that sort of thing. But it seems that there's. I agree with you that there's less. Um, it's kind of a worrying sign where where the public seems to be swayed by. Uh, by someone's uh, random opinion, and that's not facts it's based in any kind of evidence. And uh, I think people need to have a more critical uh, ear. And I think that I think the media has a has a role to play in that, in in, in bringing uh, you know objective science and uh, information into into uh, decision making and making it kind of digestible to to the average citizen.
0: Yeah, we've, we've talked about that at quite uh, some length, I think, before, with the difference between neutrality and uh, uh, and actual objectivity. And, the, you know, basically saying, well, here's a side that thinks this, and here's a side that thinks that, and we're not going to sort of give any weight to either side is is uh, quite a dangerous problem when we're talking about areas where they're not matters of opinion, they're matters of empirical data. Um, uh-huh. And this, of course, has been very concerning. But one of the things that I've noticed, and, and I'd also be very curious to know what your opinion is, is uh, over the last few years, I've noticed uh, a run of, uh, you know, either a news story Story or or an ad or even just something on my popping up on my facebook page uh, about you know uh public uh speaking classes for scientists and and political classes and this sort of and it seems to, it seemed to me I was sort of laughing because I have obviously a lot of friends in, in those areas and uh and I'm an admirer of the sciences even though I'm not a practicer that uh, i mean it's sort of like all of a sudden you know we're 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 not really taking our scientists as, as strongly as we should be, and at the same point we're almost demanding that they become like Literally, the elite that you know—some people finger-wavingly accuse them of being sarcastically—which is, oh, great! Not only are they expected to be experts in their fields, but now they also have to be world-class uh, PR people. And so, like, <laughs> who are these race of superhumans that we're we're set, <laughs> essentially training?
4: Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's interesting. I didn't, I haven't heard about those sorts of classes, but they've had them in the past. I remember I went to some media training classes when I was when. I, uh, when scientists were more free to speak, and that was in the in the like the eighties and nineties, um, and uh, and I think it's just, it's uh, there used to be a kind of a uh, and it started in, in, in government. They tried to, they tried to create sort of uh, these sort of uh, groups that would sort of link the sort of the, po- the science and policy interface so they would they would interpret science and then make it more digestible to to the average citizens and and there were there were programs and some of them are still in place, like uh yeah, developing environmental indicators for example, that would take complex science information and then uh and then and, and make it make it simple so that like kind of like the gross national product only in an environmental sense and make it uh easily understood by by most people and I think those groups they tried those groups. Uh, in in several departments I know natural resources canada had had a uh a group called spy science policy interface and uh, i don't think it's still in in, in place but uh, it seemed to have a hard time to 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 fill that role of of uh interpreting scientific information um, to help inform policy uh so I think it's an ongoing struggle um I don't know what the answer is, but uh, I think we ha- we have to take science seriously because we seem to be in this, uh, as you know, this kind of this new word "post-truth" era, where uh, all all sorts of information can uh, and opinions can can seem to really change the world at this point. Mm.
0: Well, and I, I might observe that you know part of the reason why scientists are, are under pressure to become better communicators or to find better outlets as their communication, of course, is to communicate to the public. And the reason that that is important uh, is because the, the public is then the one who then votes for governments who then enacts policy. And it seems to me that this is sort of the long way around and that this is only necessary. Not that, of course, I mean, anyone who listens to this show, I have, I have a Carl Sagan tattoo. I am all about popularizing science and communicating science to the public. That is like one of my biggest things. But as far as like a, a need, like a, a democratic need for it, um, it seems to me to be like, you know, running a touchdown by running the other way around the earth uh, when really scientists should just be plugged directly into policy. Why, why do we have to go through the public when these are are non-debatable issues or at least they they shouldn't be
4: yeah um that's a good point i mean i, think, uh, I mean scientists they 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 generally like at least the research scientists they 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 work through um you know peer-reviewed journals and that sort of thing so they were kind of work through their own kind of cadre of of, uh, of scientists to confirm their scientific findings and then make them public uh through journals which are mostly kind of online journals now i guess um and uh yeah i don't know that uh i know there are these efforts like where scientists speak directly to the public but i think it's just sort of a an open kind of communication thing and uh most of it may not be of interest to the to the general public but certainly within their within the scientific community they're they're interested and then things kind of move slowly along um so, uh i think they have to be careful about not uh especially if you're a government scientist, not talking about, not telling the the government what the policy direction should be Mm -hmm. based on their information, but keep it objective, which is, I think, a difficult, if if, if anything, those media training sessions should actually focus on that sort of, uh, that kind of angle so that they don't overstep their role as a scientist and all of a sudden become like a policy wonk, interpreting it uh, in in terms of a government uh, agenda.
0: Well, and I think as as you were already saying, the most valuable place for a scientist is to be seen as a arbiter of, you know, indisputable, at least likely truths. And that should, that should then have other people then comment on, OK, what do we do about these issues? Um, and I, I agree with you that that is ideally uh, – where science should be, uh, hopefully we can <laughs> we can get back there. Um, I, uh, the last thing I want to ask you about, uh, Tony, as well, before sure. uh, we have to let you go, unfortunately, was uh, of course the the elephant in the room or the elephant that's about to be in the room. Uh, we're about to find out what the age of Trump is going to look like, uh, and one of the things, of course, one of the first headlines that came up with relevant to specifically to scientists uh, was the extremely ominous feeling. Uh, note that went around the EPA or the in, in, environment, uh, the Environment Departmental something like that. I forget
4: what protect, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency.
0: Oh yeah, no, I was uh, sorry. I was oh, trying right. to make a bad joke there. there uh, in one of the uh, on one of the debates, uh, Trump called it like the Department of Environmental. And it, but anyway oh. <laughs> uh, sorry, I messed that
4: joke up. Okay, I, but, I, think uh, I missed that in the debate. And I watched them. <laughs>
0: oh yeah, no, it's a good one. You can you mm-hmm. can YouTube it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but of course, you know the very real problem and 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 the the scrambling to copy uh, climate data and of course. A, a bunch of uh, Canadian universities, or students, uh, or or the university themselves—I forget which—have uh, been involved in creating these sort of like data safe havens. Um, I, there's a million things I could ask you there, but what what's, what strikes you? What strikes you about that? Are you are you uh, perhaps seeing this as an opportunity as, aspect for a, a huge investment in, in science in Canada? Is there's a brain drain from the U.S.? Are you absolutely terrified by this trend? What how are you feeling about uh, next year?
4: Um, well, I. I'd, I'd it's kind of a wait and see i'm a, i'm a little bit you know i kind of got that feeling i had before we before we got rid of harper actually uh, a little bit that that feeling in the pit of my stomach that oh no we're we're moving backwards and not moving forwards um uh, and you look at some of the appointments that trump has made like to the epa you know with these really alleged climate deniers and that sort of thing so you wonder what is what, what is going to happen? I mean, uh, I like what you well, like you mentioned. I wasn't aware that there are these sort of safe havens for for data, which I think is kind of a good thing. It's a function that libraries used to used to have in, the, in back back in the day, and 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 you know they were they were the holders of of kind of the public no, of knowledge and stuff, and and, and now what I, we need some some way to to, to like uh, have the uh but places where where facts and evidence can be stored for uh that that uh are irrefutable uh but uh, yeah it's gonna be an interesting year i am uh uh i w- was not pleased to see him to see him elected um, and and uh, there's the the whole Re- republican party and uh, appointments that he's made are really kind of worrisome so i i uh i'm just Anxiously waiting, like the rest of the rest of uh, North America and the world, to see what how, how actually some of the some of the um, the rhetoric that happened during the election will actually take uh, how how it will transform into you know into, into policy. Will it really change anything? I hope they don't get out of the climate change agreement. For example, apparently that's going to a, a three year process. So even if they do, we'd be into another election cycle almost before he actually can do that.
0: (laughs) Well, and if if there's one savior there, it's that we know that he has an incredibly short attention span. So maybe he'll just forget about the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, So unfortunately, we are out of time, Tony, but I want to give you an opportunity. You, of course, despite the fact that you are now retired, right? You're correct. uh, You're you're retired. But you're not retired from being a musician, I understand. So I want Uh, to just at least give you an opportunity to maybe let people know where they can find your stuff.
4: Okay, well, I, uh, I've I've had a website for like 20 years or so, and uh, it's TonyTurner.ca. You can find my music there. I have sort of three uh, rec- three CDs of my own music, uh, which is varies in all sorts all sorts of all sorts of variety. I guess it's sort of in the sort of the folk um, singer songwriter ca- category. Um, so yeah, and I'm in a band too in Ottawa, which is kind of fun. So uh, yeah, I do I do a lot a lot of music, and I really enjoy it. So that's, uh, that's my low plug. All right.
0: Well, and then my, my last question, of course, for you is, is very silly, but it's, uh, you know, if there's a secret plan here tentatively to move all the, like, scientists uh, to, like, a moon base or something like that, because Trump is as bad as some of us are afraid, can you perhaps try and put a word in edgewise for the Green Majority team and our listeners to come with you?
4: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank
0: you so much, Tony Turner.
4: Thank you, Darren. Have a good day. Have a good day.
0: All right. So that's it for our interview. We'll be back in a few more minutes with uh, some more news commentary. Uh, Emma is going to help us dig through a little bit through the uh, uh, the Rachel Notley interview, which I think we we sort of dissected some of the uh, talking points. But we're going to get more into a little bit more structural into that, of course, as well. Uh, All more that uh, all of that more and fun and as well i believe that stefan may have a slightly fun piece about coal that he was saying in the bonus show we'll see what happens we'll with that. find out yeah without further ado though we're going to go back to our tech alex who will introduce our second and final music break
3: thank you i, I didn't realize tony turner had so much music at- and we are back thank you very much
0: alex what a nice track uh, we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And of course, we were just speaking to Tony Turner, who's a scientist that was made famous by his Harperman song last year. And one of the things we talked to Tony about was we did get rid of Harper and his, uh, how much of a good thing that was. And I sort of liked his answer, which is sort of, I think, how many of us feel, which was, yeah, I mean, we can't say it's been more of the same. Uh, there's definitely been a number of good things which are unequivocally good things that have happened, uh, but that some concern remains regarding some of the remaining issues. So with MA and Stefan's help, I want to come back and do sort of, I sort of couldn't help but run through some of this very briefly because it's so tied into the key XL reason and why there's some concern around that. But we're going to now focus, I think, specifically on the Notely interview. So if you're following along on the podcast, or if you'd like to, you can, uh, this is the uh, article titled Rachel Notely, The Kinder Morgan Interview. And, uh, you can, uh, if, in fact, if you're, if you are following on the podcast, I might even suggest pausing it here and reading the article and then starting again. Uh, but Emma, I have a bunch to say on this as well, but I've also talked quite a lot. So would you like to start us in our official review of this interview?
2: Sure. Well, That sounds very formal. So as you <laughs> mentioned earlier, this article was conducted and written by Bill Thielman, who fully discloses that he was a former colleague of Rachel Notley. They did work together in their in their earlier years and he also disclosed that he does have clients um of his firm on both sides of the Kinder Morgan arguments, let's put it that way. So that was disclosed up front. I think for me the interesting thing reading this, this interview with Rachel Notley is it really drove home my pre-existing perspective on her is that she's tried to develop the best plan possible and still get reelected. So she has developed the plan she believes is politically viable in the context in Alberta in which she operates. So as much as I f- fundamentally disagree with a lot of what is said – I have to acknowledge that she is really walking a very, very fine line here and that she's been able to dramatically develop a, a different platform from her the from the the government that came before and actually bring a lot of people to the table. Now, if you unpack the different segments of this interview and go through what she states as argument or fact for many of the points that you mentioned earlier Darren, you have to, you have to disagree with her because she she often says things like, well, it's irrefutable or the science says this, or at least implies that. And these, a lot of the statements she makes actually can't necessarily be substantiated from a scientific perspective point of view that all things all things being equal, this is gonna all these things will come out to the advantage of the climate, the environment, and still generate all the jobs that we need as Alberta. Um, so I think there's many flaws to the argument. And the last thing I'll say before we start sort of unpacking some of these points further is that I feel that uh, Bill did ask her a lot of the sort of hard-hitting questions, but there was no hard-hitting follow-up, at least the way the interview was laid out. So one wonders if the the camaraderie between the two of them somehow interfered with the kind of journalism you would want to see, where you ask a hard question, and if someone gives an answer that leaves a bit to be desired, you follow up again with another another question. And I didn't really see that in this article, to Mm -hmm. be honest.
0: It it felt to me very much like um, someone who I think genuinely wanted to get answers to some difficult questions, but at the same time read like someone who'd obviously given all of these questions to the person in advance uh, they had their answers ready and then and then yes there was there was no follow-up or, or questioning of that so I, I, it did leave a little bit to be desired but I, the reason I thought it was so worth discussing I may mean, of course and and you've, you've already said you agree with me on this was that this is the go-to argument for those defending um, the government and just defending pipelines in general right now is is was pretty much very much crystallized in this article and one of the things I expressed to you before the show was that one of the reasons this uh, piece frustrated me so much was that uh, with someone who sort of doesn't know any better they lay out a very convincing argument the problem is yes there's a lot of information that's left out here and there's a lot of assertions that are not backed by evidence in here but if you take it at face value this is an excellent advertisement for rachel notley yeah and and i also sorry and just before i go back to you i also want to agree that i that i think that I don't, and that's why we, I don't really spend a lot of time sort of criticizing her on the show because I genuinely think that she's doing the best she could possibly do within what's reasonable as a politician, and that's that's why I don't spend a lot of time talking about her because uh, I don't expect her to do any less, and I think within the confines of what she can do, she's doing a pretty good job. That doesn't mean I like her policy, but that means that I think that she's been uh, she's given up about as much as she can without giving up any chance of ever being elected again. And despite that, she's still getting to lock her up, chance. So, I mean, I, I I really have no, no no anger at her at this point.
2: And, and one of the things I just wanted to highlight, um, which I mentioned earlier, sort of one of the flagship initiatives of her plan, is this legislation to impose a hundred megaton cap on the oil sands annual greenhouse gas emissions. And so, she she goes on to say in this article that basically by imposing this cap is that the emissions will hold steady at this 100 megaton level while the production will increase because what the companies will do will make the the production process less emitting. So she's saying, I have incentivized them to ramp up production that is less emitting. And of course, this is just a perfect example of saying that, I mean, this This cap is unacceptable. It's scientifically unacceptable. It's the best she thought she could do. And it was, I would say, some kind of great feat that she brought all these people under one roof and actually got industry and and others to agree to this. But the framework is completely unacceptable to start out with. And I think that therein therein lies the challenge. And not only is it unacceptable, but now Trudeau has started co-opting this as a great achievement, saying we are putting a cap on oil sands production. So in a way, he's piggybacking on her so-called achievement.
1: I, I think what's interesting about the, the idea of this cap is it speaks to a, a larger uh, sort of failure in the way we understand carbon emissions. Uh, specifically, the idea of the, this, and, and especially within, at least with an urban understanding of carbon, and cities, whenever cities talk about carbon, there's three ty- There's three scopes as the scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one is the is emissions that are emitted uh, by the city itself you know and, and i mean like by the 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 actual you know the buildings that are owned by the city you know the city hall had a coal fire plant on top of it that would count as scope one emissions right um, anything that the city itself releases scope two is any emissions that are uh that are released within the boundaries of the city uh and so that would and so that would include you know things like heating or all the buildings in the city transportation and waste are the main, are three major ones basically and what's interesting about this cap is i think that's where this cap also ends right the this cap ends at scope two. How many – How many? What, what are the emissions that are being released by the oil sands at the site of, of where it's happening? But this is oil. You then go burn it, right? It's like it, – it's this thing where you, you, you have 100 you, – you can cap the amount of emissions that exist – from pulling this oil out of the ground, all you want, but if you keep pulling it out of the ground, that's you, and you get more of it. The thing about the, what I find so funny about this is that the idea that the, you've incentivized them to do it better. That doesn't actually solve the larger problem because it, it doesn't so, solve the
0: problem that the very point of what you're doing is caused is causing.
1: Well, well exactly. Yeah. Like what, you're, what you've what you've created. What, what I find so interesting about this 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 argument is that it, it ign- again ignores what is called scope three emissions, which are emissions that are released anywhere else but around the space. Base, which is so important in this particular case because saying you're going to cap emissions everyone thinks it means okay that means there will be a you know no more than 100 megatons will will be admitted okay then you can at least you can factor that in that math into the into the larger understanding of climate but if you're also then saying you're going they will find ways to still pull out more and more and more the emissions caused by the tar sands will continue to increase the more you pull out the more carbon will exist in the atmosphere. And so it's sort of this weird way of of talking about it, which is Disingenuous, right? It, it, and 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 no one. It's interesting is that no one is successfully, I think, actually having this conversation about scope three. Even the cities that are doing great work to to to, to aim for 100 renewable or, or or whatever, they are only ever speaking about this secondary step. No one is having this conversation about this third step. And and what's interesting is that even a lot of a lot of the solutions that would actually get that we see happening. Uh, that are the real solutions, right? Are that are, are the things that, that are actually reducing emissions in a in a way that is systemic, uh, you know, uh, and not to keep on using. But the tool a tool library is an example of this, right? You're you're, you're reducing consumption. You're you're using products better. You're actually you're using. It. However, in this understanding of this understanding of of emissions, scope two emissions uh, that are released within the city, a tool library might actually increase the emissions of a city. Because of the fact that you might have to drive there to pick up the tool or that or that the fact that you are the way that it exists in the space is, you know, you have to you have to, you have to use it in a certain way um, or anything like that, but even though we are actually even though systemically and, and and for the and the atmosphere doesn't care where emissions are released. And so we've got oh, we're we're. Taking all these buckets, basically, and putting these buckets around places, uh, cities and stuff like that, and being like, look, this is renewable, and this is sustainable, and this is sustainable, but all they're doing is shipping the, the, the emissions slightly outside of these buckets, like we got every city in the world could be 100 percent renewable and sustainable uh, and it wouldn't matter if in between the cities are, are, are coal plants that are just – that are releasing all those that.
0: would be like if you – if, if uh, Trudeau was to empty every single Canadian uh, uh, correctional facility, every federal, provincial correctional facility and move them down to the United States and say, look, Canada has no criminals.
1: Right. No, no, like – Like uh, – <laughs> It's it's a it's a it's a it's a flaw in how we how we talk about it and it's interesting because everyone is doing it um in part because it's it's a way to release it's a way to at least feel like you have control over the problem right you like you can feel like you have some control over these emissions and therefore you own those emissions and but it's a it's a- it's it's a it's another way that we're just sort of externalizing these costs and it's another way that we're removing ourselves from the actual problem
2: i i think it it also raises a really important point about not even just the long-term effects of downstream impacts, but the immediate ones. So a lot was made in this interview around... Rachel Notley now having to make nice in BC because a lot of people in BC, particularly NDP supporters, but much more, more broadly, there are a lot of folks in BC, um, not least of whom First Nations who have really taken up the fight against Kinder Morgan are, are very upset with Rachel Notley right now. And so she was asked about having to make nice and, 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 a lot of the issues that have come to the forefront are around safety and impacts. And, of course, she is very much expressing the line that, that reframing pipelines as, as the safe option – know what has come up and i want to link this to two more articles that are going to be on the reading list for this week's show just so we can include them so you can have a read in your personal time is one um around the the safety of wildlife so a lawsuit has been filed around the safety of killer whales in the waters off the coast of vancouver and the the lawsuit basically is trying to block the pipelines on this basis that it that there is an illegal this is an illegal action because the full um consequences for this whale population have not been factored in, and they need to go back to the assessment drawing board, so to speak, and include this evidence in there now Rachel Notley actually talks about safety and she talks about the government's sort of countermeasure um, to the safety issue in the waters off Vancouver in terms of that the the federal government's going to put in $1.5 billion dollars to ramp up Coast Guard activity. So if there is a threat of a spill, I don't know what, what the Coast Guard's going to do. Go tow, tow out uh, the the tankers out of our waters. I don't know what their immediate action is, but they're supposed to be on the ready. And I think the, there's an irony in this, and both you, Darren, and Stefan, have been very good at raising this on the show, that who is then paying for this? So already they're anticipating danger or risk, and already they are putting forward $1.5 billion in Canadian money, our money, the public purse, to rectify this, but we are not the ones making the profit. She also points out in the interview that Kinder Morgan is going to put in an additional $150 million. $1.5 billion versus $150 million, that, that hardly seems fair. Well,
0: and never mind the overall 30 to $50 billion a year that oil in general is subsidized in Canada. That's all on top of that. But no, no, we're going to make a lot of money off this deal, I'm told. Yeah.
2: Yes, exactly. That's, all, that's always the, uh, the counter argument there. The one last article that I just want to introduce is one that was written by Mike D'Souza, a, a favorite on the show in terms of producing excellent journalism. And this speaks to Stefan's bigger picture around downstream effects. And this is a study that has just been published. It was published and shared with the Trudeau government before they took their decision on Kinder Morgan. And the headline is, scientists just found 15 ways Alberta's oil sands sector can alter the oceans. So this is obviously um, a very significant finding. They reviewed thousands upon thousands of scientific Articles uh, reporting the results of studies, and just to sum up, what they found is possible impacts would include disruptions to organisms from the waves and noise of ships, collisions with marine life, the introduction of potentially invasive species, as well as contamination from spills or the products used to clean up after disasters. Um, The study also reviewed larger impacts that are caused by the development on oil sands and other industries such as climate change, ocean ocean acidification, and sea level rise. And we've talked about all these things on the show before, but the point is that if we listen to our scientists, they are painting a picture of what is very probable in many cases and inevitable in other cases. And, And the study does articulate this. So I would encourage anyone who's really interested in exploring these impacts and understanding them to read the study as well.
0: Yeah, and I think so we have one minute left. And the the, the thought that I wanted to close on we're we're thinking about this idea of, okay, well, we're going to keep Canada's emissions low. And as Stefan pointed out, well, okay, that's just the the emissions created by Producing the oil, and then we move it and gets burned somewhere else. And so, this reminded me of the fact that every once in a while, I like to remind our listeners and remind Canadians that Canada actually has a pretty shady history on some of this stuff, and that we are not the uh, holier than thou, you know, you know, looking down our noses at the Americans for tisk 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 all their you know wars and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we have some pretty shady history on a lot of this stuff. For instance, asbestos. Long after we banned it in Canada, it was being mined in Quebec and shipped all poison-poor people in other countries. We get rich off other people's misery, something we would already ban from doing to ourselves. And I put to you that this is absolutely no different. Even if we're able to magically meet these targets, which I don't believe for a second that we can, all we're doing is shipping the problem somewhere else, except in this case, guess what? That poison's going to flow right up back upstream because we all live on one planet with one carbon budget, friends, and that's all the time we have for today. Unless you're listening to the bonus show. And then Stefan apparently has a funny story for us. I'm in anticipation. It's really not that funny. All right. It's something. something. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good green week. We'll talk to you all real soon. Thank you for listening to our radio program this week. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We have a really interesting story that we discuss coming up now, which I think really touches on some of the oppositional nature of these conversations and uh, maybe if we can't get through to the politicians how maybe we can start having some better constructive conversations among us, the people. If you support this program and want to hear more of this type of stuff including maybe us actually getting out and doing some interviews with other regular people and getting this conversation literally started rather than just trying to sort of start our side of it you can do that by supporting us. You can become a member at greenmajority.ca or go to Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority and sign up today. Enjoy the bonus show. And welcome to the bonus show. This is our last bonus show of this year. No, nope. there's one more. There's one more. Sorry, All right, second last bonus show. But stefan <laughs> has a story about coal, which is apparently not funny.
1: Yeah, well, it's not even. Yeah, and also not exactly a story. Um, it's none of the things we teased. <laughs> Just warning everyone. Um, and it's actually so it, it comes from this thread of it's a, it's a it's a Twitter thread from some guy named Jason Miller who I don't know. Um, but it was interesting to me uh, because it brought up uh, and it, it it's it's led to a lot of other sort of it's one of the things where you read and I'm like it oh, actually made me think and I and I. So I'm I, – I want to present it and then, and then to, to, to the audience and then let them – let's see what they think about it, um, which is basically that – so I'm just going to read these 10 tweets in a row. Uh, this is Jason Miller or Longwall26. It's ridiculous that we now have to take people who have weird Twitter handles seriously now. Uh, but anyways, um, uh, all right. Uh, let's, so here's this – is, this, is, this is the whole thing. All right. Let's be constructive. I'm a coal mine kid. Uh, Cole bought my house, my, parent, my, my parents' cars, family vacations, my college, pretty much everything you can imagine. We were a union family too, so that meant wildcats uh, wild and strikes, some, sometimes really long strikes. I think our big, our big one was six months, maybe eight. My parents stockpiled canned goods, and we had no idea when my dad would go back to work. All that uncertainty creates a strong sense of community, as do the injuries and the deaths. Coal mining is, vi- is dangerous work. It was maybe in third grade when my classmate lost his dad as a- at a coal mine in electro- for electrocution. I'd never thought of my parents as mortal before. And then you do, and you never stop. My dad got injured under a rock fall one day. My uncle had his Achilles tendon severed. Another damaged his back so bad that at a strip mine, he never walked without a cane again. He was in his 40s. So when, you, so when these men and women hear us talk about how dirty coal is, they hear your way of life is dirty and destructive. They hear that the way you paid for your house and car and your kids, your kids' school is dirty and gross. Your pension and retirement is too. Coal is unsustainable. It's destructive and awful. Mountain is an environmental crime, short-sighted and dumb. But if you want to talk to the coal miners, if if you want them, if you want to win their votes, give them jobs. Give them jobs. Stop calling them poor, and for fuck's sake, stop shaming them for risking their lives in an energy economy you've been enjoying without complaint your entire life. And I think that's what I find so interesting about that is this piece of. How dangerous this kind of work is, and how and how unpleasant the the the, the, the work is, and how it I think it brings in, like coal is not the only thing that's dangerous, and and, and you shouldn't be glory and it's not a glorification of uh, of coal to, to to state that it's that is a dangerous job, uh, and the people themselves are, are are really are trying to are trying to work on this sort of thing. But I think it's interesting – I think what is me about this and also about that there, there, was, a, there was a video going around – I don't know if you guys saw it a while back of a guy who was from like – who had basically – what you'd figure was a quintessential Trump voter. Uh, talking to talking about how the media was portraying sort of him, despite the fact that he didn't—I don't think he actually had voted Trump—and actually knew a lot. He was sort of like he was like I'm—you know—he was basically like all my family works in oil and gas. Um,
0: I, I will I'll post that clip. It's really exceptional.
1: Yeah, it's great. Um, and it's and it's the sort of thing it's like these are real people with these who are living these real lives, and I, it's a easy to forget that when you're when you're talking about the sort of sector. Uh, like you know, when you talk about the oil and gas sector, it's very easy to sort of see the see the the you know the Rex Tillersons of the people uh, of the oil and gas sector, rather than you know the than your uncle who who's you know who maybe may have like may have actually you know suffered at for for that kind of work, and I think that I think remembering that and reminding ourselves of that uh, is is actively important if our goal is to is to really change it. it, 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 it To really, I don't think it's even focused on changing their minds. But if you really want to build uh, a better future, these are the people you have to sort of, you have to find a way to sort of let them like, let no, I don't say let them off the hook. But it's 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 weird, right? It 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 causes this odd tension in me um, to think about because. Coal is so bad, and and what's funny is these are the people who've suffered the most for it, right? These right. are the people who are like the. It's, what's interesting here is we've created this weird system where the people who have suffered the most for it then feel vilified, despite the fact that they are the most damaged by this industry. You know, they got paid for this job, but there are other jobs that you know that that aren't this dangerous or this dirty. Um, and it's it's it's. I think it's just an important. Thing to remember that getting coal for Christmas um, is is not necessarily uh, is 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 a thing that was just true for many people across the world, um, and that's and that was like because you know because coal gave them their livelihoods, and I and I think in all of these dirty industries, there's a there has got to be a better way to have these conversations.
0: Yeah, no, I just want to jump in with two important uh, points on that, one of them being that, yeah, I think, I mean, the thing that was, I forget if he said it or if the video I was watching that played that clip commented this Mm -hmm. on it, but the idea that, you know, many of these people are uneducated, but they're not stupid, right? Right. And so this guy was, you know, he was was articulate within, you know, a non-academic sort of way, but like he knew what he was talking about. He was not stupid. He understood the issues. Um, And it was just really interesting to sort of hear that because that's the sort of dialogue that never happens. I mean, if if we could get that guy on the show, there's no way that's going to happen, but Like, somebody like that who was like, look, okay, whatever, blah, 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 but didn't, wasn't buying into the, you know, liberals are evil and this is a climate change is a hoax. He was like, no, this stuff's real, but here's the other side of the issue and we need to come up with a solution that addresses all of these problems. Great. That's the conversation I've been desperately wanting to have for a decade of doing this show. The other thing was that uh, it also highlighted one thing because this is one thing that that gentleman who spoke in the video, again, we'll post it, you can watch it yourself, uh, very much identified, uh, did not buy into, which I think is the difference between him and many of uh, probably his colleagues which was that he did not buy into this whole thing, uh, which is that, you know, and you correctly identified it, which is, you know, environmentalists will talk about, you know, fighting the oil industry and how the oil industry is evil or the coal industry in this case. And everyone who works for the oil and the coal industry goes, hey, you're attacking me. And I think it's really fair to feel that way um, from a feelings point of view. Um, And I think it's really fair to misunderstand what some of us uh, on our side have been saying might insinuate that but it's even... it's wrong it, it's wrong and it's also it, it it's sort of not our fault and I, I don't think that it recuses us from responsibility of trying to acknowledge that and use that as a way to find a solution but you know as uh, the the core, were as the environmentalist I didn't say that oil companies and all of their employees are evil the the people who are sort of identifying themselves with the oil companies so that when we attack the oil companies they take it personally are the employees and i think that's the real challenge that's the challenge and i'm not trying to put everything on them what i'm trying to say is that sort of that's that's our my challenge at least to them to say hey we do want you to have a job we just don't want you to have that job come and have a conversation with us but we're not the ones saying that sort of you know anyone who works for an all company should go down with the ship that's no, no no. one has ever said that
1: people have definitely said that though here's the thing is that is like the, nobody on this show has No said one that. the, No, that's fair but i think there's i think the other thing to realize is that in the same way that um that when we that we will lump in a ton of people who say you know work in the coal industry who one says something you hear three things in the coal industry you, you take them all the same, there are definitely people who are, who are who are willing to attack. The oil industry workers themselves online because people are dicks online, and then every other environmentalist conversation gets lumped into that conversation. And I think unless you, you, I think it. uh, What what struck me about this conversation, about this this one cool conversation, basically, um, was just that it was. It was a moment where someone was sort of a was 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 having a, a conversation on a deeper level than what we normally do. Um, you know, like we can keep saying all the things we keep saying, and, and environmental, but but if the, if we're not being heard the way you want to be heard, it's some ways we are the communicators it's in some ways up to us to find a way to communicate that we the, the, our empathy and our goal to to really help these people first and foremost um and so uh i've now said a bajillion words uh do either of you two uh mma
3: and alex Ricci are in the, are also here do you guys have any thoughts well i thought uh, i thought the one that one thing uh, that he said was really uh important was that uh all of us who vilify uh, the coal workers are still complicit in in the same crimes that they commit uh, because we all consume the energy that they produce.
0: Nobody, uh, nobody actually saw you make those scare quotes out. Right, right, right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, I'm quoting in the air right now. Uh, so uh, it's important. It's important for environmentalists to remember that they likely have been consuming dirty energy for the their whole their whole lives, at least up until recently, until other alternatives were available, um, and that uh, it's important to let empathy be the driving force behind uh, the environmentalist mission rather than a- aggression or hatred um, in a- in attacking people.
1: Yeah, I think there's, I, I think that, that what's, what's funny, what's interesting is, is that because you, you you can't help but get tied to the thing you've been doing forever, and so if someone attacks that thing you've been doing forever, you get re- re- like if someone insults baseball in my presence, I feel attacked, and that's a stupid baseball thing. Sucks. <laughs> I'm now attacked. Stop attacking me. Um, and I think that's like, and we see that everywhere right now, right? You see that like people people pick the things they identify with largely arbitrarily, um, and and then and then you have such a hard
3: time disassociating that. Yeah, and you're you're not. Baseball and they're not they're not coal. No, right? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they, exactly. Yeah, and and like you know if, if if baseball
1: was causing climate change, which to some extent it sort of is uh, in a very 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 minor yeah. way, but like you know it's it's the way these kind of events happen. They're not it's not great. Um, but like it, 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 it's interesting that the people who it's this, it's this, you know it's almost like another set of this injustice that exists layered on justice injustice injustice later on injustice that that you get to the point where the the people who are who are who are li- who are making they're digging up the coal um end up identifying with it so reacting negatively and then you get defensive people reacting against defensive people and you bat back and forth people de- people's defensive stances on things um which is not useful conversation at all right like, like that's the and and I think we, what we need to do is find a way to to break past that and I think the way we break past that is is through ha- saying things like this guy said on his Twitter thing or, or, or what he can of, of being like hi I'm an environmentalist but also uh, the, these are the you know I grew up this way this was how I started these are the these are the way these are the ways that I, 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 I'm failing myself um, and, and if you if you can be open yourself, then it actually is possibly the other person to maybe also be open. And I think more often than not, online engagement in, in especially is true for this, that you, we are failing to, to open ourselves up and allow ourselves to be able to have this conversation uh, because – and so we get this, we get to this pong of of defensive of defensiveness, right? Like I say something, the cold person feels attacked. They respond. I then feel attacked, so I respond. And now we're just yelling each other each on, uh, at each other on Twitter, and no one's life is better. And we're not. And neither of us have learned anything except more, except more othering of the other side. And I, I like I, I don't have. This is not a solution, which is why I said it wasn't fun. Uh, it's just it's just a thing that I've that I've become obsessed with.
0: Ma, would you like to chime in?
2: I don't know if I can say anything more profound than what's already been said, but I think the the point that Alex raised about empathy really crystallizes it for me. And, and if we decided across the board and all the issues that we're collectively trying to tackle to stop stigmatizing people, then we'd just be uh, a lot further ahead. And I guess the one thing I'd point out is I don't see a massive effort – on the part of our society or government for that matter to really um, pragmatically invest in retraining people so that they have more alternatives to move away, whether it's working in the coal industry, which is is quite rapidly getting phased out, or it's working in the oil sands, um, they're just has yet to be any sort of initiative on a large scale to really help people make that transition um, from one type of work to another. And we all know that skills are very transferable from those industries to, for example, renewable energy industries. But there has to be the will to make that investment from the society at large, but specifically from the government.
0: Yeah, and I think, like, one of the things we were talking about was, like, you know, why are we building all all this infrastructure for something that, uh, if we're successful in the things we're claiming to do, will be rendered, like, you've just eliminated the financial argument, and if you're saying the financial argument works, then you're saying that you weren't really serious about the climate goals. So, one of the aside from the fact that it's something I'm going to be coming back to a bunch in the new year because I want to really sort of put it together. I've, I've talked with Stefan uh, repeatedly off the show about coming up with a list of uh, policy, please steal our policy platform ideas and just like, here's a bunch of things you should try. <laughs> uh, one of them being like, well, yeah, exactly. Addressing this jobs thing. One of my one of my other longer rants, I think it was in a bonus show, but it happened a little while ago, was uh, the idea of, you know, we need to, if the if the issue here is that Canadians are going to be out of work, then let's make, let's instead of investing all these money in a pipeline, let's invest in the large job retraining program in the history of this country. Uh, another like just spitballing ideas here. Uh, I would be far more open to the idea of some of these uh, pipelines if in the construction of these pipelines was infrastructure that at, at the right time when it was uh, viable to do so, that this infrastructure could also be used to share renewable energy back and forth across the country. We have these giant pipelines running across provinces. Sometimes certain types of energy grow better in others at other times. So being able to share this energy uh, over a large scale could be done. So if this was if like, if this infrastructure took into account its own demise, uh, which was that at some point we need to stop burning oil and there will not be a need for a pipeline and that need is going to need to come before the ultimate line of that pipeline, then let's literally have it built into that pipeline that it has. it's capable of this infrastructure having its purpose transferred to this new reality these even if these solutions in, in and of themselves are not viable it at least shows that we are at least honestly pursuing the goal we claim to be pursuing which is getting off oil uh, because as we know we cannot and unfortunately and i have to rebuke uh rachel notley and justin trudeau and all of their sympathizers at this point that we simply it, they're saying that we have it is simply out of our hands that all of this oil we dug up and it's simply a matter of how much we're going to make by doing it um if that's true then we've already lost and i say scrap you know, the climate Paris accord. Let's just all go build casinos and, and give away free liquor and cigarettes and legalize all drugs and let all anarchy break loose. Although I, and, Never mind. I'm gonna come back to that one. Uh, but like, just why bother, right? If because if you're not gonna meet that target, then halfway doesn't cut it. The climate's not gonna give us half of climate change. We either get runaway climate change or we don't. We either stop this problem before it's it destroys life on this planet or we don't. And so if you're gonna do an insincere half measure, um, I say don't bother. And if you really do want to solve this problem, let's, then let's actually let's actually act and and make decisions as if we're going to succeed, which is what I think is the the big cognitive dissonance between the rhetoric and the actions that's been coming out that we've been talking about on this show today uh final comment or should we end it there nope getting a bunch of no's i think that's it thanks everybody have a good green week we'll come back to you real soon